0: Hi and welcome to the journalism salute i'm mark simon in each episode we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism the intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people thank you for listening on this episode we're joined by Lori Ezel brown she was the publisher and editor of the canadian record a community weekly covering hempfield county in the northeastern texas panhandle a newspaper in existence from 1893 to 2023, and a legacy business owned and published by the Ezel family since the late 1940s. This episode comes at the suggestion of Al Cross, director of the Institute for Rural Journalism and Community Issues at the University of Kentucky. Hi, Lori. thanks for joining us.
1: Hello, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to, to talking to you and getting your perspective on the newspaper industry and journalism in general. But first, yours is going to be unique. We don't typically talk to people family legacy of family legacy newspapers. So I ask, how can you explain your journalism origin story?
1: (laughs) I was born into it, and I didn't have much choice about that. So, and, uh, you know, once you're in a newspaper family in a small town, there's no escaping it, I promise you. You You are known for that You're known by, you're known for your parents and their points of view and the things that they've written and the things that they've been outspoken on. And you learn very quickly to form your own opinions and, and you learn to back them up. So we grew up in the newspaper business. We helped our parents in any way that, you know, they needed us. We were child labor. We were paid what we thought was a fortune, but I'm sure it was not much. It was enough to run up to the candy store up the street and and buy buy whatever junk we thought we
0: needed. So, so what was your earliest memory of it?
1: You know, my earliest memory is really the linotype that that was sort of the center of the press room. And it was a working linotype. We had a linotype operator. The, the middle part of our office was you know it was where the where the the where sentences were formed letter by letter by this amazing machine and it made this really fascinating noise the click and the clack and the and these pieces moving back and forth on a rail and and it was just fascinating so i remember watching the linotype operator just form language It was fascinating.
0: So just not to give away your age, but would that be the 1950s?
1: Yes. Well, yeah, I was born in 52, so I'm 70. Okay. You know, I'm okay with that now. I've made peace with it.
0: (laughs) We all have to. Uh, So I typically ask here if there's something in your upbringing that lent itself to telling stories. The answer to that is obvious. So maybe there's something that we should get to know about the earliest days of the Ezel family being in the newspaper business. And I know there's a story, a famous story about your father and a concussion and a famous story that your father did an expose of the John Birch Society.
1: Yeah, my dad, you know, I don't remember this probably firsthand because I was too young, but my father apparently, you know, he was outspoken and he angered people in his editorial commentary and he at one point apparently wrote something about a swimming pool that a family here in town had and that there were rumors that there were dead dogs in the swimming pool and i don't know what he wrote i know that he was the story was attributed to him writing about the pool with the dead dogs in it but it was the pool was not safe let's say, let's say that the pool was not safe. And he was, dad wrote about it in a a news report. Um, What I do know is that he was sitting down at his office one Saturday afternoon, as he often did alone, working, writing stories, writing editorials and a very large, very, I'm assuming pretty threatening looking man walked through the door and, strode up to his desk and towered over him and said I've just driven 2,000 miles to whoop your ass and my dad said well and I think he stood up and my dad was rather thin not you know he was tall but thin didn't wasn't wasn't a very daunting looking man and my dad said well it doesn't look like it was hardly worth it does it and that was the start of their conversation and he finally realized that this man was the son of the family that owned the swimming pool and he was very angry that his family had been accused of having a contaminated swimming pool but it it was sort of an epic story he didn't whoop my dad's ass although later my dad's ass did get whooped by an angry politician and uh, and so those two stories, I think, led to the title of his book that he wrote before he died, which was called The Editor's Ass. <laughs> okay. His publishers tried to persuade him not to name it Editor's Ass, but he was not to be, yeah, he was not to be discouraged.
0: Uh, all right. So describe your dad a l- and, and your your family just a little bit in terms of your parents. In fact, and give us their names too, certainly.
1: My dad was Ben Ezel. My mother was Nancy. I, my dad was the firebrand, obviously. My mother was the heart. She made my dad possible, I think, because whatever my dad wrote, my mom could always make it, could soften the blow with what she wrote with her column. And so I think they made a good team together. My dad was very smart Very well read. And he was really a very kind, generous man with a great sense of humor. But he could, when he pounded out an editorial on his typewriter, you knew he was writing an editorial because it was just, it just reverberated on his desk. It was, you knew what he was doing. He was sort of a four fingered typist. And so you knew when Dad was writing an editorial because he was always fairly forceful with it. He always made a point. He made it clearly. He never backed down from it. He picked a few fights with with his editorials, but he could usually back them up. He did run crossways with a politician once and got hit and punched in the face, I believe, and put in the hospital. Um, I think it was more dramatic it was made more dramatic than it really was the doctor wanted to make sure that it became clear that dad had been attacked. And so we wrapped him up fairly well and took pictures. But he was hurt. And, you know, it wasn't the first time someone tried to attack dad or tried to attack us. Our house was sometimes the target of what dad would call an editorial opinion when someone threw a rock through a window or in one situation, he actually, they actually put a small bomb under a bedroom window. And so I remember that well, cause it was my bedroom window. It, that was dad's attitude about it was whenever someone did something like that, he said, I guess they were exercising an editorial opinion. So, which huh. I thought was very. Tactful. Broad-minded Tactful, broad-minded.
0: Yeah. So Canadian, Texas how would you describe it to an outs- an outsider
1: it's a very small town pretty quiet community except on friday nights when the football games are played you know it's very conservative when my dad moved there it was very democratic but it was conservative democratic in the probably the early 60s it turned very republican and and just got redder and redder by the day it's i think you said 86% voted Republican. I'm not sure I would have thought it was higher than that, but I haven't looked lately. So but it is very, very red, very conservative. It's also it's a it's a very good town. It's a beautiful town. It's on the you know the Canadian River breaks. There's, you know, you drive into Canadian and it's flat forever. And then when you reach close to Canadian, there's mesas, there's trees, there's a river that runs around the town it's really a very beautiful place and it's it's interesting because it's very it has a real uh cultural life it, there's a an art gallery there there's a lot of interest in the arts and in music and and which sort of offsets the interest in football and sports and i think it's a it's a conservative town but it's also very progressive i love canadian
0: that's an interesting contrast now You left, as I understand it, and then came back to to run the the paper after the death of the family. Can you explain what happened? It
1: wasn't quite like that. I left to go to school in Baltimore, and I was there for a while, and then I moved. I, uh, moved with my husband to northern Maine. We had a baby there, lived in the woods, built a cabin sort of thing, and then after a while realized that The education system there wasn't great. And our son was getting old enough that that was going to matter. And we moved back to Texas. When I moved back to Texas, I went to work at the newspaper office because it's what I knew. And, you know, I did various jobs. For a while, I ran a, a, a printing, a job printing business there, a little offset press that I ran. Then I started doing typesetting and Eventually became the ad designer and ad manager, ad salesperson, whatever. Did that for several years before, before my father died.
0: Now, how does a family newspaper last for 130 years?
1: Well, you know, I don't know how it got through the first 60 years. Right. I know, I think it was a railroad newspaper for a while. You know, the railroad started some newspapers. Because they realized their importance in, in developing communities along the path of the railroad. And uh, so they started newspapers. They, they used them to hire workers. They used them to promote what they were doing. And those newspapers stayed. They survived. How our newspapers survived, I think, was just, you know, my dad, my mom and dad both. I mean, it was fiercely local although their politics were, didn't mirror the local politics. A lot of the issues that they wrote about, a lot of the issues I wrote about after them, I mean, a lot of the politics was local politics, local and state politics. And I found that there was a lot more common ground with the community on those issues that were more immediate than there were on the grander scale of national politics. They, they, you know when my dad died one one area newspaper said Benny Zell covered covered the covered Canadian like a wet blanket and i don't know if that was a flattering term or not but he did he covered it he covered every bit of it and and like i said it was fiercely local news and the community had a hunger for that and he fed it
0: so i'm looking at some of the stories that you had in some of the issues kind of leading up to the the final run, there was a story, don't crowd the plow. There were things about beef conferences, the hiring of another nurse practitioner, why a fire truck fleet has rainbow colors, the crossword puzzles in the shape of the state of Texas, which I thought was pretty cool. Well, what were the things that you typically covered?
1: Well, we covered everything. We covered anything and everything. I mean, we covered all the school news, all the sports we covered the meetings, the public meetings, the, we covered, you know, I loved writing feature stories because, you know, that was when you really focused in on a person or a group of people who were doing something interesting. And, and that was really, to me, the heart of what we were doing was the, the newspaper should reflect the community. It's, it's, it's serving. And, and when you, when you write about the people in the community and tell their personal stories, then you're, you're, there's, there is a hunger for that, an interest in that. And you're also sort of defining, helping define what the community is. Um, can, you
0: give, can you give a couple of examples of, of stories that you're particularly proud of?
1: You know, I was thinking about that, gosh, it's 30 years. You know, I was really proud of the way we covered the, covid pandemic it was difficult to cover and it was a difficult time to get a newspaper out because the money was it wasn't there there was no money there was no advertising everybody was scared and business was really slim and everybody was struggling people were losing jobs businesses were closing you know it was a very difficult time and i was really proud of how we got through it but but the stories that that I wrote then that were really very difficult, but really important was, you know, I did a series of stories about people who had lost loved ones to the pandemic and wanted to talk about it. And, you know, back when COVID started, nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to admit they were sick with it. Nobody wanted to admit that it was spreading. Nobody wanted to admit that half the town had it. You know, it was just this big, you know, Verboten thing, and and I found people who would talk to me. And in fact, I did four interviews in about twenty four hours. a Couple of them in the middle of the night with some people that were just the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, just very sad people who had lost loved ones, who who were really upset with themselves because they hadn't done what they should have done or what they thought they should have done or could have done to save them or to protect them. Really tough stories. But I think it gave that that very real personal face to this misunderstood disease. And I think it made a difference. I think it allowed people to talk about it.
0: Well what are some of the stranger things that you covered?
1: <laughs> stranger things. <laughs> well, there have been a few of those. You know in the in the meetings that I covered you know that was a really interesting thing to do the the first meeting that I covered was a school board meeting my dad didn't cover them he didn't the only meeting he actually covered in person I think was city council and I was just determined I was going to cover all of them which is crazy because it takes hours to do that but I did So when I first walked into the school board meeting room, it was, it was really interesting because the doors were closed and I opened the doors and everything stopped. Everybody froze and they slowly turned to look at me and the superintendent said, can I help you? And I said, well, I'm just here to cover the meeting. And. I realized quickly that this meeting room, this public meeting room, was only large enough for this large board te- table, these very cushy, high backed boardroom chairs, and nothing else. There was no place for the public to sit and listen to the meeting. And, and I was not welcome. Um, but I stayed, I sat in the doorway, tried to hear what they were saying. And, you know, I kept going. Their meetings kept getting longer later into the night. They'd go until two and three o'clock in the morning. And I think it was just testing to see how long I'd stay there. And I finally started writing about things like the size of the board meeting room and how it really can't be a public meeting if the public can't sit there and listen. And I just made the superintendent furious. He hated me. But I remember after I'd written about it a few times, someone from the administration building who never said their name called the office on a Thursday afternoon and said, Lori, pick up your camera, come to the school administration building now, and hung up. Well, I didn't hesitate. So I went up there and walked walked in, and they were tearing out the walls between the boardroom and the superintendent's rather large office, and expanding the meeting room so that it would accommodate the public. So it was kind of one of those little victories that I had.
0: That That's great. Are there other examples of things where something changed significantly in the town as a result of what you wrote?
1: I wrote a lot about w- when it's one county with one community in it, really. I wrote a lot about how tax dollars could be better used if the city and the county and the other taxing entities worked together on projects and how they needed to talk to each other because they didn't. And when I went to a county commissioner's meeting, the county commissioners talked about the county and the city as if they were two separate things. And Canadian is right in the center of this very large county that has no other cities in it. And so they were using all these tax dollars the county has all the money because that's where all the oil and gas activity is city has very little and so i started encouraging the city and the county to have meetings together because they they should talk to each other and figure out ways to spend tax dollars in in ways that they would have the most effect on everybody in the county including the city taxpayers who also paid county taxes. So it, I think that gradually took hold and gradually had made a huge difference on the community and and the progress that we achieved.
0: Were you ever tempted to run, to run for office within the town itself? No.
1: no. <laughs> you know, I really believe in the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics and There is, you know, it's hard enough being the editor and the reporter of a newspaper because you have to, you have to separate the two things. And it's difficult, but it's possible. And I couldn't even imagine, I was asked once to become a member of the Economic Development Commission and I said, I just, you know, I care deeply about it. I think I can have as much effect by writing about it as I can being on it. And I couldn't write about it if I was on it. So and I felt that way about any elected position.
0: Sure. It occurs to me we should shout out the other people on your staff. Yeah. I know it's a very small staff. Just tell us about who, people that have helped you over the years.
1: Well, there's been quite a, a sort of mix, but the key people who have helped me over the years are Kathy. Kathy was my first reporter that I hired when I realized I couldn't possibly go to football games, basketball games, go cover public meetings and cover everything else that needed to be done. And and Kathy was my best friend growing up. She and I met the first day of first grade and had been friends ever since. So she was smart. She was good. She's just a good person. And she calmed me. <laughs> which I need calming sometimes. So she was a great asset to the newspaper. People loved her and I loved her. And she just retired a couple of years ago and that was a huge loss. Another person was Mary Smithy, Kathy Ricketts, Mary Smithy. Mary Smithy, I hired, she was a waitress actually. And we hired her to help, just to help out around the newspaper which was real trick because we just kept giving her more jobs and more jobs. And Mary has become a fixture of the newspaper as well. And she's still working there. And she's, 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 she does everything. I mean, she answers the phone. She does the books. She, you know, handles classified. She mails the paper. I mean, she does everything, but mainly she makes me laugh. And she can, she's the only person I know who can actually ask someone to pay their bill and make them laugh at the same time so she has skills that you know will never show up on a resume but that are critical so those are the two key people that have been with me the longest and they're amazing
0: so that's all right so that's amazing the size of the paper obviously the size of the staff different certainly from a lot of the other people that we've spoken to. Are there misconceptions about rural newspapers or things that people might not know about rural newspapers that you'd like to help clear up for us?
1: Hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't think anybody in Canadian has any misconception about the Canadian record at this point, but we've been doing it a long time. So I think there's an assumption maybe that small town journalists are kind of hicks and Not that smart and don't know that much. And I think small town journalists, you want to know who my heroes are? They're my heroes. I mean, they do a a difficult job. It's a lonely job. And it is, it does not, it's not hugely rewarding financially. It's often not hugely rewarding any other way either too, because, you know, it's personal to your community you have immediate, they have immediate access to you. If they've got a problem with you, they're going to show up on your doorstep or they're going to stop you in the grocery store or, you know, it's just a tough job. And it, and as I experienced, and as my son experienced, when you are the son or the grandson of a controversial newspaper editor, you catch the flack too. So it's tough on your families. It's time consuming. They're my heroes those people. So I don't think people know what a difficult, challenging job it is, and how important it is that they're doing it. And that's my mission, is to make sure that people understand that.
0: So what are the circumstances that have led you to decide to shut the paper down?
1: I'm tired. I, I mean, 30 years of, you know, pretty much consistently 20-hour days is tough. And no vacation, no time off on the weekends, I and mean, it's starting to take a toll. That That's the main thing, really. I'm just tired, and I don't want to do it to the point where I can't do it well. I'm really proud of what I've done, and I don't want it to, you know, I don't want to degrade that. I want to do it well, and then I want to finish But I had hoped I could pass it on to someone else, somebody younger who, you know, we've reinvented the newspaper and how it's done. I don't even know how many times just in my career. And I've always been willing and I've always been, you know, interested in learning new things. But it needs to be reinvented again. I mean, there are there. I'm sure that there are new ways to do things that I'm doing. There are new ways to reach people you know the print edition is probably not going to last forever i don't know but you know i didn't want to reinvent it again and i was hoping to i was hoping to attract somebody who felt the same interest in journalism and the same interest in working in a small town and having that kind of impact and i just haven't been able to find that person and it's been very disappointing really I don't think there's the interest in or respect for journalism that there used to be, and if there's one thing I could change, it would be that.
0: Yeah, that must be difficult. It is.
1: It is in this in this atmosphere and this in the cultural climate today. It's very difficult.
0: Very how did difficult. how did things change in the town post 2016 election?
1: Well, I don't know that they changed. Yep. I, you know, I think we've misread that whole thing. I think there was a something happening before, well, and I'll just say, you know, before Trump showed up on the scene, before he became such a larger-than-life figure, I think there was something going on already. There was this distrust of the federal government. I, I've sensed that for a long time. There was a distrust in, you know, in journalists and the Metro newspapers, and there's been that distrust sort of bubbling up already. When Trump was elected, i it was the first time I realized i what I wasn't so sure I knew who I was writing for anymore. i I didn't recognize in in Trump. The people who I knew voted for him, I didn't recognize the values, the things they cared about, the things that, you know, the, the kindness that they had, the charity that they, that they lived, uh, you know, the caring for one another. The, even the religious foundation that I thought was in my community, those things suddenly seemed different and I, I I found it very difficult to know who I was writing for. I really did. and And when you lose that connection, it's it's really heartbreaking. I think maybe you know, I don't know. it It's really been a difficult time. And I have seen the community change. Of course, I've seen a lot of the older readers, the older people who were just so loyal to the newspaper. They've died. You know, I know that because I've published their obituaries and the character of the town seems to be changing slowly. The values of the town seem to be changing slowly. So I think there is a shift occurring. I don't know that a newspaper editor can make that huge of a difference in how the town views the national political scene. And I don't think I've made much of a difference, though I have continued to write about
0: it. How did people respond when you started publishing Heather Cox Richardson's essays in in your paper?
1: Well, here's the thing. I'll tell you two things. I think they probably have learned not to read it, a lot of them. But here's the other part, and this is really important to me. And And if you saw the documentary that was made. You'll know this because I read this letter at the very end of it. I I received lots of letters from readers, and and they're very personal, and they're you know most of them, many of them, not for publication. They just want me to know. And I was I, I was ready. It, and it was during the election and, and the whole Trump, the trauma of Trump for me. And I received a letter from a young woman in town who and i i got home one night it's actually an email and i got it and read it after a very difficult day and she said i i want you to know that you speak for me and my friends please don't stop writing because we need your voice we can't talk to our husbands we can't talk to our families we can't talk to our parents we've but we we need we, we talk to each other and we need your voice. we need to you to continue writing what you write. So you know maybe it doesn't suit everybody and maybe they don't agree with it and maybe they think about it, and maybe they don't, but there it still serves a purpose and and that convinced me not to give up for many years after so
0: sure. Now, though you've shut down, I've noticed that your Facebook page, which has 14,000 followers, is still active. How will you be using that moving forward? Well,
1: I'm trying to use it as a placeholder right now because we, we're we facing a lawsuit over a local story. And the family is the family. And it, it involved the death of a young man. And I won't go into detail about it, but the family after six years, we've covered it for over six years now. And after six years, the family decided that we had defamed them. And the, they, had a, they had a private investigator, and the family and the private investigator filed a defamation suit against them. So what was I, what question was I answering? How are you using <laughs> Facebook? Oh, so fa- Facebook. So we ha- haven't been able to sell the paper. We came close to it and then called that deal off because we were pretty convinced it wasn't a, good, wasn't a good match for us. And then the day after we called off that sale, they dropped the lawsuit on us. So I, as you can imagine, selling a newspaper that's facing a defamation lawsuit is not the easiest thing in the world to do. And we've sort of put that on hold for now. Fighting a lawsuit is not that easy to do. So we have so we decided we couldn't continue to work as hard as we were publishing a newspaper and fight a lawsuit and try to sell the newspaper. So we're going to focus on the lawsuit and we're going to fight that, which we believe we will be successful in doing. And then... We're going to continue publishing as much of the news of the community as we can on our Facebook page, which is a little easier to do from wherever you are and to put less into it, which is not what I wanted to do, but it's what I'm going to do. It's what I have to do. So I still feel that responsibility.
0: It's it's good that you're maintaining, you're continuing to maintain some connection. Certainly you mentioned a documentary. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes, I was approached about five years ago by a woman named Heather Courtney, who's a independent doc documentary filmmaker, and she had made a couple of other films. I mean, she's probably made more than that, but she wanted to come meet me and talk to me about the newspaper. And she was sent my direction by Al cross, interestingly. And uh, so she came five years ago, for the first time and then the pandemic hit and she was coming from California. And so with the pandemic on, it was more difficult for her to make those trips. So it got slowed down. Then she had some illnesses and it got slowed down again, but five, five years later, she released the film. It's called for the record. She released, she premiered the film at the Missoula, Montana, Big Sky Documentary Film Festival. And I think I, what I can say about the film is she got it. She got us. And she got the heart of everything. And it's it's a, while I don't like seeing myself on the screen, I do like how we managed to tell this story. And I think it's an important
0: thing. How, how do people access it?
1: You know, they, I don't know how they're going to roll it out. Okay. It's going, they're, they're doing the film circuit, right? The the film Festivals. festival circuit now, and probably trying to find someone who wants to, okay. wants to air, it. wants to, I don't know. Sure. I don't know how that works, but.
0: It, it, it sounds like, the, it sounds a lot like the one about the newspaper in Storm Lake, Iowa. Uh, that came out recently, which I particularly, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but I got a lot out of watching it. Unfortunate for what they're dealing with. One or two others, just before we wrap up here, how has being a journalist impacted how you view the world?
1: Mm. That's a great question. I don't know that I can answer it very well. I see the world as a more complicated place than I would have otherwise. It's It's not flat. The world is not flat. There are many dimensions to it. There are many stories to it. And they can be told many different ways from many different angles. I think it's just given me a better perspective of of what's fact and truth. but, But, you know, also this feeling that you have to work harder to find the facts and the truth of things than than most people realize. I think that's how it's affected my view of the world.
0: Is there advice that you would give to someone who said in this day and age, with everything that's going on, with all the challenges that the newspaper industry faces with the lack of interest in print media that says, the heck with it, I wanna I wanna run a community newspaper, a weekly, daily, whatever it is. Do you have any guidance for them?
1: Well, I just for speaking for myself, I get to work for myself. I, you know, I don't work for anybody else. I don't even work for the public, although I count on them to buy my product. I chase the stories I want to chase that I think are important, that I care about. I know that I make a difference in my town. I've seen the difference in 30 years. I've seen the difference. I know when we announced we were closing. I I can see the impact too. People care about it. I've never had so many grown men come into my office in one day crying. And it was it's hard to talk about. It's hard to think about, but if you ever want to know that something you're doing is valuable to your community, I mean I I've learned that. It's it's incredibly valuable and it's personal. Everyone calls it my newspaper. Not our newspaper, my newspaper. It's personal. And I think you can have a huge impact on any small community and on the world. On the world.
0: Certainly. And it sounds like you and the Canadian Record and your family have very much done that. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you'd like to salute for their good work?
1: Well, you know, I love I care deeply about rural communities, rural America and rural news. And I think, you know, the Daily Yonder, the rural blog, Outcrosses rural blog are amazing resources and should be read by people who don't know anything about rural communities. Also, as I've already said, my heroes are community journalists. Tough job. You're not going to get rich. But there is so much value in it, and and you can just, you can make a community matter to itself. And so they're my heroes. They're my heroes.
0: You can make a community matter to itself seems to be a good way to, to close this. Laurie Isel brown thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck as you move forward into this new phase, and we will certainly be keeping our eyes out to see what happens. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.